Okay, so, first things first, catechism question review. Question 12, what is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Okay. And question 13, how did God create man? God created man, male and female, after his own image in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness with dominion over the creatures. All right, so we'll start considering question 13 next week. Today we're going to finish up question 12. So just to rehearse, we did a couple weeks of intro. We considered how God created all things of nothing or ex nihilo. We considered how God created all things by the word of his power, specifically how that refers to Jesus Christ as the word. And then last week we focused on God creating things in the, things in the space of six days. And we made an emphatic point that that means six literal days and specifically the necessity of a historical atom and some problems if you don't have that. And so today we're going to finish up by God creating things all very good. So the, the second sermon that I ever preached, that I preached here, was focused on God's goodness. And that primary text for that sermon was Nahum 1.7, which says, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who, takes refuge in him, who take refuge in him. And so as, as one of God's essential attributes, goodness is something that really just emanates from his being. So this God, goodness is one of God's essential attributes, and it just emanates from his being. It's not something that he possesses because he is God. It's part of his very nature itself. And so I also in that sermon made some minor points about that comparing God's greatness and his goodness, how those two things are complementary but not necessarily mean, mean the same thing because greatness really kind of speaks to his omnipotence and his goodness speaks to his moral character. There's much more to both of those aspects. But greatness kind of speaks to, towards his omnipotence and his goodness speaks towards his moral character. His goodness also speaks to his beauty for beauty and aesthetics in their highest form really should reflect things that are true and are good. And so uh, one of the things that you see, especially in modern times, is that we're inundated with a lot of ugly art and a lot of ugly... ugly yes, Richard agrees emphatically over there. <laughs> yeah, that's, I was, my next word was architecture, too. We have a lot of ugly art and we have a lot of ugly architecture. And that, that says something about the moral character of your society when you have a lot of ugly art and you have a lot of ugly architecture. Um, but not God, right? Because he is all good, he makes things that are all good. He makes things that are beautiful and he makes things that are, look good and that are good um, and that have good moral character too. Um, Benjamin Bedholm, he was a, an, an 18th century English particular Baptist. He wrote a, a brief commentary on the Baptist catechism that, that we use and whenever he speaks about God creating all things good, he asks this rhetorical question in there. He says, of what omnipotence wrought did omniscience approve? And I like the way that's phrased. Of what omnipotence wrought did omniscience approve? And rephrased in a simpler way for us simpletons, it said, did God approve of everything that he had made? Okay. 
And of course he did. It's a rhetorical question. Of course God approved of everything that he had made. So that brings us to Genesis 1, where we were obviously going first of all here. So Genesis 1, uh, remember there's a lot of patterns in Genesis 1. There's a lot of repetition here. So there's, there's parts of repetition where God spoke, speaks, you know, and God said, and God said, and God said, and we brought those before. We brought those out before when we were talking about the word of his power. There's a lot of repetition in, the, in regarding the space of six days when, and morning, and, and the, there was evening and there was morning, and there was evening and there was morning, and there was evening and there was morning. And then there's also a lot of repetition whenever we're considering this phrase. Very good. So if you go starting in... Where was I going? Starting in... Verse 4, there we go, I skipped over it. Starting in verse 4, and God saw that the light was good. Okay, so that's the first instance of it. So God makes light, and God saw that the light was good. And then you keep going on. That was in the first day. And then verse, the end of verse 10, after God makes the seas and the waters, and God saw that it was good. And then verse 12, the end of verse 12, after God makes the earth spring, sprout forth vegetation, says, and God saw that it was good. And then in verse 18, the end of verse 18, after God separates the light and the darkness, and God saw that it was good. And then verse, the end of verse 25, after God makes the earth bring forth living creatures, and God saw that it was good. Oh, I skipped over one, verse 21, and God saw that it was good after he creates birds to fly and sea creatures to swim. And then... At the apex, over in verse 31, after God makes man, right? God makes man. You see a distinction here. So you got, and God, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good, and God saw that it was good. Five times. And then God makes man in verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Okay? You have a shift here from good to very good after God makes man. And then God steps back and surveys everything with man being at the apex. And God says, this is very good. So you can kind of see here, you can really imagine God after concluding each day of creation, kind of stepping back and, and looking what he has made and says, yeah, I like that. That's, that's good. So his omniscience approved of what his omnipotence created. So that's good. You can really see the kind of joy that God gets out of his acts of creation here. There's really, there's nothing out of place that he has made. All the physical laws, the logical laws even that he has made. Time itself is working properly. The earth, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, they're all functioning exactly how God intended. And then strangely enough, even opposite to some of our post-fall perception perceptions, God even declares the deep waters to be good, which you see a lot in the rest of the Bible, especially in the Hebrew literature, that the deep waters and the sea are chaotic and they're not good, but God declares the deep waters to be good. And God even declares darkness to be good, darkness that's opposed to light post-fall. God even declares the darkness to be good here. So that those are those are interesting because the sea and especially darkness, are considered bad. They're considered terrifying in the rest of Scripture, and they're opposed to God in the rest of Scripture. But even God, when he creates these things, the sea 
the deep sea, darkness, God declares these things to be good. So that's, that's also interesting. And God, so stepping back, he observes everything that he, made, he has made, and he sees that it's good. Light and darkness, sea and sky, heavenly bodies, the terrestrial earth, fish and birds, land animals. And then the declarations of goodness really do reach their apex when God steps back and he observes his creation of man. So he declares man to be made very good and everything man ties together in creation to be very good. It's now very good that man is here. (coughs) And we can really understand that feeling too. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking about examples how you you can create stuff that when you step back and you see it as good whenever you've created it. I've mentioned woodworking before, something that I like to do. I create something, I step back, you're done with it. You say it's very good. Tony, Mike, when you all make a deck or finish a roofing job or something, you step back and you look at it and you say, yeah, that's, that's good, right? Or if you, if you bake a nice cake and you step back and you say, yeah, that's, that's good. Or you create a new piece of music or something. You know, you step back and you say, yeah, that's good. But there's something different about a baby, right? When you have created a baby and you see that baby for the first time and you hold the baby and you know that's different. Right. Of all the other things that you've made, this thing is different. Right. This is very good. And it's very good because your image is in there. And we'll talk about them being made in the image of God in a few weeks. But this is a very good example of how God can make all this stuff. And then he makes man at the end of it and says, man is different. Man is very good. It's the same feeling that you get whenever you've created a baby and you're holding that baby. And you say, well, this is very good. Everything else that I've ever made doesn't really compare to this. Um, And so that's the same thing that really highlights how we're made in the image of God, too, and that we can relate in that way to our own children versus anything else that we've ever created. And so you can see that coming through here in the creation narrative. And so, like I said, we'll we'll start talking about man next week and the image of man in two weeks, Um, the image of God, man being made in the image of God in two weeks. Okay, so going back to the behold in verse 31, when you say behold, God, it says, and behold, it was very good. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And so the, the reader of Genesis here is be, being really invited to see creation from God's vantage point here. For Moses, whenever he writes this, God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. So you've got, you can just imagine here how wonderful everything is. And you've got all of this inherent beauty going on after the conclusion of creation. Everything is just really beautiful, too. And not only is it beautiful to look at, but God is also declaring something about this moral reality of creation, too. Everything is declared morally good. He looks at everything, and it's beautiful to look at, but it's also morally very good. Sin obviously hasn't entered yet, so everything is morally pure. Death and destruction and chaos, they're not in the picture yet. And so while many things do appear to be good about our present day war, appear to be not good, I'm sorry, while many things do appear to be not good about the present day world, this was not so at the beginning. Everything was created very good and it answers to God's purposes and expresses his own overflowing goodness in creation here itself. And so we know that sin is coming. There's going to be an invasion of sin that's going to come in chapter 3. 
the material creation does actually retain some of its goodness. So even though sin comes in, we know that sin comes in, and we know sin made most things or all things not good in some capacity, the material creation actually does retain some of its goodness. We're going to come back to this in just a second. So uh, I pulled this from an internet site. I'll give you the source if you, if you want it. But this is a quote from them, and I thought it was very good, so I'm just going to read it. <clears throat> it says, This goodness also reflects that everything was functioning exactly how God intended it to function. There was no dysfunction. God had a design and a purpose in mind, and that the created products met his approval. He judged them to be effective for serving his purposes. It is encouraging to know that we can trust God to inform us truthfully and accurately. If he is making determinations like this, assessing the quality of all things created, and if we can trust him with that, then there's a precedent clearly presented that we can trust him with anything. He is the determiner of what is good and what is not. This is one reason that Satan's statement in Genesis 3-4, that God was either wrong or he was lying, and that Eve would not die if she ate the fruit, was so wrong. God had determined what was good and what was not good, and God had communicated that to Adam. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve failed to acknowledge that. They failed to acknowledge that God as creator had the right to define, to assess, and to judge. It's easy for us to make the same mistake, but God has graciously allowed us to access his creation account so we can learn that he is the person that defines what is good, and we can trust him, and we should trust him. If we don't, we're falling into the same trap set at, that Satan set for Eve, trusting someone else's judgment when God has defined, determined, and communicated what is good. So you can see here that because God has declared what is good and because he encompasses everything that is good, we can trust him in being the judge of all things. We can trust him in everything that he has said because he's a good God. But obviously the fall marred everything. And we can, by very quick observation of Scripture or even quick observation of really anything around us in our relationships or in this world, we can see that everything is no longer not even good, but especially not very good. We can see that. Very simple observations in very little amount of time. You can see that things are not even at the barest good, but especially not very good. There's death. There's sufferings. We do actually have a lot of vestiges of good around us. You can see these things, but these things are no longer absolutely good. They're no longer perfectly good. And we know that there is, there's not a single area that sin has not touched, and not the least of which is our own souls and our own natures. So now, because of the fall, we're born in a state of total moral depravity. So even though we're not as bad and wicked as we could be, there is no part of our natures that can be called good. So that's a problem. And also... You know, after the fall, the world is no longer good. The world no longer being good is what makes the incarnation even more mysteriously sweet. Right? Because Jesus, in physically entering into our world, he came into a not good place from a place that has an infinite measure of goodness. And this goodness is abounding everywhere in the place that Jesus came from. The place that he came to is not good anymore. It's not very good. It's not even good. 
So you see that this is what makes the incarnation so so wonderful. Jesus coming in, in perfect communion with the Heavenly Father in a place that is pure and good in every way that you could possibly imagine into a place that is not good in every way you can possibly imagine. He did this because he cared so much for his not good people that he entered into their not good world, a world that he himself created very good in the beginning. Right? But we, by our sinfulness, we have transformed this very goodness that Jesus himself created into very not goodness. And so that's how much we hated him. We've destroyed his world that he has created. But for grace, though, grace says that while we were yet sinners and destroying his creation and uglying up everything beautiful and making things not good, Jesus comes into the world 2,000 years ago and sets the world on a path of goodness again. So this is the story of grace. This is the story of Jesus' love for us. This is what the incarnation is all about. Jesus coming back and making the world good again. And so then we do look forward to the day when Jesus returns, whenever he inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. That's an easy one, right? That's an easy one to look forward to. That's an easy one to state right now. We do look forward to that because there is coming a day when the world again is going to be very good and not marred by sin, not marred by death or suffering or destruction or even anything ugly. That ugly architecture that Richard hates so much will no longer be. We will, have, we will have beautiful architecture everywhere. Yes. So that day is coming. It's something to look forward to. It's something to pray for. The goodness transformation is going to be complete. But the Bible does actually tell us that goodness actually is still here. There is good, goodness here in these present last days. So if you'll go with me to 1 Timothy 4. Okay. It's going to show you that goodness actually still is here. Even though sin has touched everything, even though sin still mars the world, there actually is still goodness here. So in in 1 Timothy 4, I'm going to read verses 1 through 5. Paul's warning about, about false teachers here. That's what it says. It says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the operative phrase for us, especially is verse 4, for everything created by God is good. And the two specific examples that Paul gives whenever he's refuting these people is marriage and food. Those are good things. Those are things that I enjoy. So you see that Paul is saying that there is still some goodness still left in the world. And there were these, these false teachers that were coming in and saying that God can only be achieved by denying the good things that God has gifted his people with. Two of those things that um, Paul gives examples of, again, being marriage and food. And so there's, there's no real reason to say that these things are not good. 
These are part of the goodness that has been left over in the world, even though sin is still entered into the world. And you could see that, that because of sin, there's, we have broken relationships with both marriages and food. But marriages and food are still two good things that God has given his people to enjoy. And we should be thankful for those things. And then there's also this, this part in verse 5, this phrase in verse 5, for it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So we're, we're thankful for the food, we're thankful for the marriages, and we're thankful for all the good things that God has gifted his people with whenever we pray. But it's also made holy by the word of God. So Paul is really kind of echoing back here to Genesis 1. Remember Genesis 1, one of those patterns is, and God said, and then at the end of the day, and God said, and God saw that it was good. And then you go to the next day, and God said, something is created. And then at the end of the day, God saw that it was good. God said, and it was good, and God said, and it was good. And Paul's bringing that back up here. God says these things are good. God says that his gifts that he's given to his people are good. So they are to be received with thanksgiving. They are to be received with prayer. And so we've still got goodness in the world. And this is similar, similar to the argument that is made by the preacher in Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes 9 Verses 7 through 10 say this. Go, eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart. For God has already approved of what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun. Because that is, what your, that is your portion in life. And in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. But there is no work or thought or knowledge and wisdom and sheol to which you are going. So this is the same, same thing. You see this, you know, Paul was probably, sounds like he was obviously thinking about this verse and these verses in Ecclesiastes too, because he points out the same thing. God has given you the food to enjoy. God has given you a wife to enjoy. These are parts of the good gifts that God has given you. And so you should never feel bad about enjoying the things that God has blessed you with. This is the taste of goodness that's still left in the world, right? Christian contentment doesn't mean asceticism where you have some sort of extreme self-denial to the point of starvation or to the point of having no relationships at all. This is why we don't believe in monasteries or things like that. Um, because that, that doesn't really seem to jive with what, what Paul says here, what the preacher's saying in Ecclesiastes. Christian contentment means accepting the lot that God has placed in your lap, but also praising the Lord for good food and good relationships. So these are the things that are left over from creation that are still good. And so whenever we have these things, this is a very small taste of that very good that's still left over from Eden. Satan didn't destroy it all. He did not come in and destroy all of the things. And, as we already mentioned, it's going to be so much sweeter at our Lord's second advent. So we can look forward to that, to where there is no suffering, there's no death, and these relationships are even more pure, and the food that we enjoy is even more pure, and the work that we do is all good, and it's not drudgery, but it's good work, and the art's going to be great, and the architecture's going to be great, and the lamb's going to be there, and it's all going to be very good. So that's something to look forward to. Um, but God did create all things good, and we do, we do look forward to it.
And we'll read a psalm to end, like we've been doing. And then we do have time for discussion or questions or anything else that we might have. But psalm 19 is where it's the psalm that I'm going to read to end today. <coughs> psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer.